Every day I wake up not feeling myself. I throw my change in the wishing well. Anything to up my game. It's me against life, and I don't know who's winning. Loneliness knocking at my door with boxes and letters, all things and more. I open up to let them in. It's been so hard without you, my friend. Praying now harder than before. My God, my God, what have we in store for all our minds wanting to do right? For all Thy people trying to survive, we're living life in and out of time. Perspective skewed by age and mind. Uncertainty begins to drone. Am I still punk when not? Hey, Dunker Punks! Thank you so much for tuning in for another episode of the podcast. I am so excited to present today's episode to you. It features the voices of just a handful of the many indispensable leaders in the Church of the Brethren whose ministries of love and vision exemplify God working in the world for joy and justice and peace. I think you'll probably recognize some of the voices on today's episode, and I hope that this is also a chance for you to meet some others whose steadfast work has lifted up their congregations and their communities. They come to us today at various stages of their life and their leadership, but each of them has been called by God and by their faith communities as leaders of the church, and each of them has left an indelible mark on the denomination by accepting and following that call in profound ways. Today's conversation is led by Annalisa Gross, who interviewed all of the voices featured on today's episode. Annalisa's work here arises out of the Church of the Brethren Women's Caucus a network of feminist women, men, and gender nonconforming people whose vision is advancing equality of roles and opportunity for women. Many of the voices you'll hear today also appear in a podcast series that Annalisa prepared for Messenger Radio about speaking truth to power. That series, which you can find at brethren.org messenger, arose out of a panel conversation that Women's Caucus convened in July 2020 on the same topic. In these interviews, which are prepared alongside that work, Annalisa asks each person to talk about when they first knew that they were a leader. Annalisa asks that question knowing that 50 years after the formation of Women's Caucus, women are still called to a minority of formal leadership roles within the Church of the Brethren, such as pastorates, denominational committees, annual conference offices, and more. Yet, at the same time, women contribute far more than their fair share of the actual labor that goes into making the church run, often with no recognition, let alone compensation. We often fail to recognize women's service as the leadership that it is. Annalisa and her guests invite you into the conversation. By sharing their stories of leadership, we hope this is a chance to reflect on your own leadership experiences and how the Church of the Brethren desperately needs to change, to lift up and call out the leadership of women, people of color, LGBTQ people, and others at the margins whose contributions are so often unwelcome and unheralded. We start with Sally Rich. I'm Sally Rich, and I go to Eel River Community Church of the Brethren in Silver Lake, Indiana. 
when did you know that you are a leader in the church? I would say that maybe I still don't quite know that. I have a little project that I do. I shouldn't call it little, but it's a project that I do that I got involved with in Uganda. That project has given me so much joy that I feel like it's given me the ability to speak up when I don't feel like speaking up. Basically, it's it's like if someone says, do you want to talk about your project? Yes, I want to talk about my project. Whereas before, I wouldn't have wanted to talk about anything in front of other people. I wouldn't have ever wanted to do a podcast. I wouldn't have ever wanted to speak in front of church. So I guess that's what makes me realize that I must, through this project, I've become a leader. Do you think that that has impacted how you function even outside of working on the project? Um, am I more leader outside the project? Yeah. I don't know. It's hard to say because I feel like my life is so much about this work that I do now that it's really hard to imagine myself. It, 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 it just comes into every part of my life. And so it's just really hard to imagine that I'm doing something outside of the project. It just demonstrates how deep and true of a calling it is for you. Yeah, it really feels like a calling. That's definitely it. I think this is something that I've wanted to do all my life, and I didn't have a, an avenue to do it. Ever since I was in college, I started to think about what I wanted to do with my life. This was kind of what I envisioned, but I kind of envisioned that I would be in Africa all the time, but I'm not there all the time. I'm here because I have work that I have to do here while the people that I'm involved with in Africa do the work there. Next, we'll hear from Mary Scott Borea. My name is Mary Scott Borea, and I'm from the First Church of the Brethren in Chicago. I grew up in, in Battle Creek, Michigan, and I grew up in the, in the AME church. Parents were both very involved. There was a church that Black people went to and church that white people went to. In the Black church, there were two churches. There, were, there was the Methodist church, and then there was the Baptist church. Um, and my family was more Methodist, not knowing there was a Church of the Brethren there. And we wouldn't have gone to the Church of the Brethren if we knew that it was there, because I don't think we uh, had a sense of who the Church of the Brethren were. So anyway, I came to Chicago. My mother worked at the hospital. The church was right down the street from the hospital. So eventually I started working at the hospital as a teenager. We started going to the Church of the Brethren because my mother worked there and everybody who worked there were pretty much members of the Church of the Brethren. And it wasn't until I was probably 40, many years later, my children were born, my children were baptized there, my sister and I had been baptized there, that my aunt in Kentucky sent me some pictures of relatives that were all Church of the Brethren people in Ohio. And I discovered that my grandparents, parent that came from 
Germany came from the Church of the Brethren in Germany in the late 1700s. I said, how, how does that happen? That bonded me a lot closer to the Church of the Brethren because I sort of believe in that kind of stuff. I sort of believe that your life connects you with the universe in a way that will reveal itself to you at some point. It's interesting. I, as The more I learn about my family, I come from a lineage where the women in our family are very strong and very strong-minded and speak their truth as they see it. And that's on my mother's side. So I think from a young girl, I always sort of felt I was very shy and very introverted, and I still am. I still don't always feel quite able to speak my truth or to speak up, uh, but I always feel very strong inside. I've um, always kind of had that expectation laid on me um, to to speak up. I often can call the elephant in the room. And, um, and, you know, lots of times people don't like that. They like to, the elephant in the room to be veiled. I always weigh the cost. <laughs> As women, I think we're always, I think that sometimes we're, we're aware of the fact of, you know, how we will be seen. I don't know that men pay attention to that. I'm not a man, but I, I kind of get a feeling that they say whatever they want, and, but that we don't want the labels. As I get older, I may not be as brash, you know, I may be a little bit more conscientious of how what I say or do might be received. I think without necessarily being fearful or cautious or you want to you want to speak in a way that allows you to feel empowered, that you've been able to um, express what is in you. And then there are times when you want it to be heard. And sometimes those are contradictions. And sometimes you don't care if the person hears you, you just need to get it out. You need to people to know that you're not taking their shit. Regardless of how it is received, I need to deliver it. Maybe that it'll be re- received at some point. Maybe they will be less likely to take sort of my point of view for granted or take what I'm offering for granted. And I think sometimes as women, we're so concerned with you know, not being seen in a certain kind of way. You know, I've gone to annual conference uh, several times and I don't know anybody. I remember one year I went and I told my story about my family history in the Church of the Brethren and it was just flat. I mean, you know, it was like, oh, okay. So my energy comes from the few people I know outside of my church and my church. And I'm very drawn to and have been drawn to the values of the Church of the Brethren that brought me there. But then I get there, particularly when I get into a large body and I'm like, really? (laughs) Okay. And I'm excited. My kids are, I mean, my children don't come to church, but they would dream of being affiliated with anything else because it's the values that they grew up with in our church. And they went to National Youth Conference and they went to camp and all that. They feel very connected, but it's just very hard to have that authenticity revealed in a way that encourages Well, I've been in the Church of the Brethren for 52 years. We're such a small congregation. It's almost, I feel as in lots of ways, we're a congregation of leaders. It was something that we felt 
called to do and something that we felt passionate about and also something that people sort of said, okay, we want you to be involved. And I think at the time that I was more probably heavily involved in the church. I was doing, I was working, obviously, I'm not working now, but I was working at the time. And I was doing a lot of anti-racism work. Our church, and I think even the denomination, was really looking at issues of race and oppression and thinking about a Church of the Brethren's diversity or lack of diversity. And so I think in lots of ways, it just converged in an interesting way. And that's when I think I probably saw myself much more involved and engaged in the church. It just seemed like a very natural relationship. Annalisa spoke next to Dana Cassell, one of our Intrepid podcast co-hosts. I'm Dana Cassell. I'm the pastor at Peace Covenant Church of the Brethren in Durham, North Carolina. And I also currently serve as the program manager for the Thriving in Ministry initiative of the Office of Ministry for the denomination. I went to seminary because I like studying religion. So I didn't even think when I went to seminary that I was going to be in the church. I would never guess that about you. (laughs) I studied religion in undergrad and I really liked school and I liked studying that. When I went to seminary, I thought I was just going to grad school, but I was doing an MDiv. And so, like, in the middle of the three-year degree, I was like, oh, crap. This is not just grad school. They're training me to be a pastor, like, in a church. Um, but when I finished seminary, I did not immediately go become a pastor. I was I didn't want to do that. And so I went into BBS after seminary. But my project was celebrating the 50th anniversary of women's ordination. And so I got to hang out with all these really fascinating women clergy, and they are the ones who sort of convinced me that being a pastor might not be as boring as I thought Mm -hmm. it was and might actually be interesting, and they themselves are really interesting and so different from one another, but also from a lot of the other male models of leaders that I had known. So I think that might be like when it became a possibility. Mm. Like the church could be a very cool place to situate work. And Mary Jo, my mentor and boss, was super encouraging. And she probably thought of me as a leader in the church before I ever considered Mm -hmm. that as a possibility. So it probably was not until I was working as the minister for youth formation at the Manassas Church of the Mm -hmm. Brethren and also still doing some denominational things when all of the pieces clicked together. So when I was in the congregation, I had a very clear role. I was a leader in the congregation, Mm -hmm. and I had not had those kinds of leadership roles before. I was a student. I had some, you know, extracurricular activities. I had preached in my home congregation, and then I was a BGSer, so I was, like, had a staff role, but in the congregation, I was a pastor. Mm -hmm. Not the senior pastor, but I was clearly clergy. And in that congregation, clergy are deeply respected. Uh Those people loved me really well. And they also just looked to me for leadership. And while I was there, they had a big senior pastor transition. And so I was the consistent pastoral presence Mm -hmm. over the course of three different senior pastors in that role. And I think that helped me self-identify as a leader, in part because I watched those three male pastors be pastors very differently. Mm. All three of them have very different styles. And that was really helpful to see, oh, like that's a really great way to do this. And so is that. And so the other Mm -hmm. way. And none of them are the way I'm going to do this thing. 
And I think at the same time that that was happening in the congregation, like I was also participating in conversations and communities and in places where the larger church was working stuff out and recognized that one of my gifts is articulating things. I discovered that that can be helpful in those conversations. And often when I said something that felt really um, important to me and like came from a deep place for me, that was what other people reacted to and also felt. And that, recognizing that as something I had to contribute, not in a formal role, because I, like, worked for the denomination, but I didn't really have a staff role or a title. I was just there in all the places. And when I would notice something and talk about it, other people were like, huh, yeah, like, that's how I think about that, too. But you said it in a way, or I really don't think about it that way. But you named something that we need to talk about. And so being able to claim that as a part of leadership. I mean, like, Mary Jo put me everywhere. I met with DEs and with women clergy and, like, committees that she had. And, I mean, that's a privilege that she just gifted me. Like, mm-hmm. she said, I'm picking you up and putting you in these places. If you look around the church, women are leaders mm-hmm. of the church. Yeah. more than men because women women are willing to show up and get the work done as the church is running out of money and asking way too much of people women are the ones willing to do that statistically speaking even women don't end up with the highest formal levels of leadership but they are the ones who are keeping the church going it seems like there's a coinciding of when something becomes devalued and women start doing it I recently had a conversation about preaching where someone who is not a woman said that preaching is outdated and not useful anymore. And I I think that is probably fairly prevalent in the larger culture that, mm-hmm. like, why would anyone sit for 20 minutes and let someone talk at them? That's a really good point and a sad but perfect example because it specifically has to do with authority and using one's voice. Do you think women are let in as soon as something starts to become less valuable? Or once women start to do it, people unconsciously decide it's not as valuable? I don't know, but I kind of wonder if when these things start to crumble, women have resources and creativity to do them differently. Mm. And so there's an opening for things to be done differently. Mm. And women or other groups of people who have been marginalized from those roles say, oh, well, we've been thinking about doing it differently all this time anyway. Yeah. Why don't we do that now when there's some openness and some space because the old ways are clearly not working exactly the way they have been. That's such a faithful way of seeing it. I was focusing on the problem. How did the problem start? And you're seeing a huge gift. I think there's still a whole lot of problems there. For so much of human history, like women have already been devalued or cast aside or relegated to the places where resources are not abundant. And not just women, but I think in every society, people who are relegated to the margins, it's easier to have those skills of Mm -hmm. making something out of very little or doing something creative with Mm -hmm. what's left over. And in the church, I think generations before me really wanted or at least acted in ways that led them to inhabit roles of leadership in the ways that men had been doing that. Mm -hmm. And I watched some women do that, and it was really ugly. I'd like to do it differently if it's possible, but I'm really steeped in the old ways. One of those old or traditional or masculine ways of thinking about leadership has to do with formal positions 
And that comes up for me when I think about answering my own question. When did I know that I'm a leader in the church? I was on the panel of speakers for an honors peace breakfast, and that felt really significant to me. Mm-hmm. But I think that has more to do with confidence building than actually being a leader. It's important, and leaders grow as a leader. Or I have grown as a leader as I've gotten more confident. I don't think that is actually when I had become a leader. Mm-hmm. But those little nudges along the way are really important, and I think they're probably even more important for women who have been told so many times in the church that our voices are not wanted or problematic. And so when we're formally recognized and invited to amplify our voices, it's very significant. So much of a church's and pastor's energy ends up being focused on paying for the property, paying for the new roof, paying the pastor, Mm -hmm. and that becomes all-consuming. And none of that has anything to do with following Christ. I think it would be easy to assume that, oh, wouldn't it have been nice, Dana, if we could have been pastors in 1965, if they would have let us, and (laughs) everything was growing, and there was so much money, and we wouldn't have to be the ones staying up late the night before something to make the brochure. Mm -hmm. We don't have to be the ones going around, hanging up signs, trying to create community events or something. We would just pay somebody to do that, and it would get done, and we could focus on the big picture pastoral leadership concerns. But I think that that it in some ways would have been the worst time to have been a leader because there were enough resources and enough optimism to devote all of one's energy to the organization. might have been satisfying in spurts, and good programs came out of that time. However, it's easier than to forget what what the real reason for coming together as people of faith is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I graduated from seminary 12 years ago, and I've yet to have a full-time ministry job and I don't expect to ever have one Mm -hmm. and I like that I mean I think that's a gift to me and to the churches that I serve and to the larger church too because if I'm a half-time pastor I can't make brochures we're working on a new website right now which is really cool I would like to design a new website Mm -hmm. and I don't have hours to do that Mm -hmm. like the congregation has to step up and figure out how to do that right Um, because I can do worship and visit people and figure out how we're going to be in mission where we are. That's more than a half-time yep. gig. Um, and I like that. That is boiling ministry down to what's essential mm. and figuring out how to do that. It would be nice, though, like, <laughs> to have an office where I mm-hmm. spent half the day making brochures and mm-hmm. had health insurance that came with it. That would be pleasant. But it, it wouldn't be fulfilling or faithful. If you've ever been to annual conference, you'll likely recognize the voice of Annalisa's next guest, Chris Douglas. Chris Douglas, Highland Avenue Church of the Brethren in Elgin. You know, I had so much fun with that question, Annalisa. And um, the fir- I'm going to go with my first instinct. I grew up in the United Methodist Church. I didn't join Church of the Brethren until I went to Manchester College. Growing up in a very, very tiny United Methodist Church in northern Indiana, just east of Plymouth, a little tiny town called Hamlet, and our church probably had an average attendance of 50 to 60 people. And at that time, and I'm trying to think when that would have been, late 60s sometime, I had never heard of women in ministry. 
I mean, that was just not even, even in the United Methodist Church, which now probably has more women pastors than men pastors, but back then that was pretty unheard of. But when I was 16, my congregation asked me to preach on layman's Sunday. And it was layman's Sunday because at that time, I don't think a woman had ever spoken in our congregation on layman's Sunday. It now is in Methodist church called laity. Sunday, that tradition continues of a layperson speaking, I remember the kind of awe that I felt being both female and a 16-year-old and being asked to preach on Layman Sunday. It was kind of this enormous sense of responsibility and privilege and honor I think then I really felt like a leader in the church. I was already on church board. I was president of the uh, youth group. I was on district youth cabinet, those kind of things. But I think the moment I really felt like a leader was when the congregation asked me to preach on Layman's Sunday. I still have a sermon in my files, and it's so embarrassing now when I go back and read it because it's so trite, but I, I preached from the Sermon on the Mount about being salt and light. You know, I remember when the church board chairperson called me to ask me to speak. I remember thinking, did you get the wrong phone number? My parents were not involved in church at all. They were members of the Methodist Church, and we only lived a block and a half from the church building. So from the time I was in kindergarten, I would walk over to the church. I had perfect attendance pins from kindergarten through eighth grade. The church nurtured me in a way that my family didn't. And I always felt so at home in the church, which I think has been a part of my struggle with rebelling against the church is at, at a foundational level, I know the church saved me. I mean, I already got in plenty of trouble as a teenager, but I could have gotten in a whole lot more trouble if I hadn't had that grounding in a congregation who, in a myriad of ways, told me that I mattered. Well, I think that was my, my sense of call to youth ministry for so many years, realizing what the church meant to me as a youth and wanting the church to do that for other young people. Here next is Eric Bishop. Eric Bishop, Laverne Church of the Brethren. I don't know when I realized that I was a leader in the church, and I don't know how I became one. I think part of it became because I had national staff experience. A couple of years I worked for Messenger as managing editor, editor and then director of new services for the church, I think gave me visibility. 
the, the visibility from that position, along with the visibility from my blackness, was a uniqueness in the church that I think gave a voice of authority in areas that I may not even realize. And then even after I left that national staff position, I stayed active, mostly in youth and young adult activities. And so there's a, I think a generation that I grew up with and worked with. Even though I was a professional, people, by, based on my age, people assumed that I was a BBSer. And because of my age, I related to BBSers and hung out with BBSers, who themselves are also now becoming or have been leaders in the church. And I think it just emerged. And honestly, I think a good part of it is, is the rareness of the, my Blackness in the church. Seems like you've got a, a variety of skills, a variety of interests, and you've served in a variety of places. Has that kept the leadership fresh and sincere, or has it also become wearisome for us all to recognize you and call upon you over and over? I don't think I get weary from that. You know, there are those moments um, where you feel like, okay, I'm here because of this. But I love who the Church of the Brethren is and for what it stands for and historically what it's meant. And so there's an internal desire to to see that be the best church that it can be. And I struggle with where the church is right now because it's not living up to its faith mission. There's a part of me that feels as though if I'm going to be in it and I have the voice, it's my responsibility to use the voice and not get tired. And I don't always step up and use it. When we get tokenized as women, as queer people, as people of color, and the church says, let's put one of you on our committee and see then we're being diverse, that is really not helpful. It's very hard as the lone whatever we are in the room to feel like we even have the, the safety or the space to speak. I feel like we've moved to a place of maybe we get two or three people from marginalized identities in the room. Has that been your experience that you used to be the only black person on the committee and now you get to be one of two or three? It, ironically, <laughs> I think there are fewer black people in the church than there are LGBTQ members. I think I'm still more isolated in that role because I went to University of Laverne. I learned how to adapt at being the only. The tiresome part is I, I don't have the luxury of not speaking. I don't have the luxury of being silent if, if something is wrong because there's no one else who has the voice, understands the lens. I think where we're at right now is there are more people willing to speak to the issue for me, and f with, even if they don't have that lens, that helps. So I can be in a room, if the right non-Blacks are there, then they may still speak to that issue. Believe me, African-Americans, Black people, we're not monolithic. So my voice is my voice and may be representative of a voice, but isn't necessarily representative of every Black voice. Getting more in the room ensures that the whole picture, the whole voice is being heard. Lastly, we hear from Audrey Svey, who represents a new generation of denominational leadership stepping forward to lead the church during an unprecedented moment of uncertainty amid a global pandemic. 
My name is Audrey Say, and I am co-pastor at the Eel River Community Church of the Brethren. Interestingly, I would say the moment where I felt like a leader was the day that they told us because of COVID-19 that we were not going to be meeting in the church the next Sunday. I started in the pastorate really with little to no experience in the pastoral care side of things. I was an English ed major, and I had done a lot of preaching and pulpit fill, but I really was relying on the experience of the two older pastors on my team. And in that moment, when they told us we weren't able to meet, my first reaction was, okay, how quickly can I get a video of myself uh, preaching a sermon and get it on YouTube and get it up for people so they have something on Sunday? And to me, that seemed like just, the only option that I could think of at that moment. We're a small congregation, so we don't have, we didn't at the time have the video set up to video in the church, and the other two pastors didn't have the technological know-how to put out a video. And I just happened to be in a position where my husband had video equipment, and he was experienced in video editing and he had those skills and it was very strange for me because I'm 25 compared to my peers I was not very adept with technology so I never thought that I would be put in a position where I had the most knowledge about technology but I just happened to be in that moment the right person in the right place at the right time to do that for the congregation and so I felt like a leader in that moment when I preach, I've been told I have a very gentle presence. For me, that always felt like, oh, I don't have that spark, that fire, you know, that punch that gets people's attention. But the way it comes to the congregation is that I can talk about issues that might be kind of tense or have some kind of division. And I can talk about it in a way that people don't get defensive and they just can listen. And so in that way, I can be a leader in talking about issues with the congregation. You're thinking about it contextually, you're thinking about it relationally, and you're thinking about how can you be of service in the context that you're serving in. How would you say that your understanding of leadership is influenced by the Church of the Brethren? There's a feeling that I was supposed to be a leader and also was super unprepared to be a leader because of my background. My grandmother, Harriet Finney was the moderator of the whole denomination in 2003. I had this history in my family of leaders in the church and women leaders in the church. I never felt an expectation, but also there's this feeling that I could carry on what was started. So people throughout my life were always giving me that encouragement. Oh, you could preach or, oh, you could pastor, you could go to seminary. I always kind of wanted to make my own path and get there in my own way. I kind of came into leading gradually. You say as a 25-year-old pastor who just started seminary, you have brethren and beyond roots. How does that impact how you are recognized within the church? My dad's side of the family is Hispanic. My other side of my family that had been Church of the Brethren way, way back, lots of pastors. They're all Caucasian and they're light-skinned, and so I don't necessarily even look like her. Like your grandmother, Harriet, you do have a gentle spirit. What are other ways that you feel like you're similar to her, or what would be some ways that you feel like you're leading in a way that is different from her? 
when things would get out of hand, she didn't have that deep, booming voice to just stand up and command everyone's attention. But people have told me she would just say, let's come together in prayer. And she would pray and she would bring it back to quietness and focus on the spirit. And I also have a very similar preaching style to her. I have just boxes of her sermons from when she used to have to write them on the typewriter and just print them out. Her manuscripts are mixes of the Bible and stories that she's heard, stories that she's read and personal stories. And I am almost identical in the way that I set up my sermons and the way that I present, which is just my natural style. I started preaching before I even had those copies of her sermons. I think the way that I'm most different from her is that she always knew that she wanted to be a pastor, that she wanted to be in a congregational setting up in the pulpit or doing pastoral care in the church setting that was her church. For me, I'm still finding my path that I want to go down. I really do like pastoring in the church, but I would also love to be a teacher of at a seminary or another secondary educational institute doing research or speaking somewhere or even being in the denominational district work somewhere. I also love writing, so I kind of haven't found my place that I want to be yet, which is, is totally okay with me because I'm open to all these different things, but she kind of knew what her place was. How old were you when she was moderator? Right around eight. They did an interview in The Messenger. They quoted me. I was saying, I want to be just like my grandma when I grow up. And so everyone would say, oh, so you wanted to be moderator when you grew up? In my own pastoral ministry, I think mostly, maybe due to my experience, but also just my nature, I dread letting people down. Like I dread someone needs me to pray for them, and I don't know the words to say. And what if I say a prayer and it doesn't help them, it doesn't give them what they need? I may always struggle with that. I think things like praying come easier the more you're in the position, but also it's a need to trust that God can give them what they need also. And I'm not alone in my ministry. And, and that's maybe also because I don't have a lot of experience that I feel that pressure more. When you ask someone who's as young as I am to step into that position, there's not going to be a respect based on life experiences necessarily. If you hire someone who's been in the field for 40, 50, 60 years, they have so much wisdom and so much knowledge that I probably don't have. And when I step up there, that's not a given. The other people in the congregation might have a lot more life experience than I do, but they're acknowledging that a lot of my life experiences may be different than theirs. And so in my own way, I have these stories to tell and this way that I've come to my values or the way that I approach reading the scriptures that could be totally different and that they could still learn from that or still grow in their own faith from that. And that's that's kind of incredible to me to be given that opportunity. In preparation for today's episode, Annalisa sent me this excerpt of a letter addressed to Church of the Brethren Women in 1971. A women's caucus can be a transformational force within the life of each woman, in the experience of the Church of the Brethren, and in the fabric of society. Women who link arms in this cause are saying yes to creating a new vision of themselves 
as worthy individuals and as active participants rather than submissive followers in the affairs of all social institutions. Transformation occurs as we dream about and work toward the fulfillment of ourselves individually and collectively, and equally important as we assume personal responsibility for the directions of the church and of society. Women may, in a very real sense, be able to hold a plumb line for society that will encourage all social institutions and human relationships to become more just, more egalitarian, and more loving. Fifty years after those words were written, that transformation is still underway. And we're still left reaching out to grasp that plumb line drawing us closer to justice, equity, and peace. I hope today's conversation led by Annalisa has stirred you to think more about leadership in the Church of the Brethren. I'm happy to say that we'll be featuring Annalisa's voice in future episodes of the podcast as she continues to share material from her interview series. Until then, she asked me to leave you with three questions to ponder, and we hope you'll reach out and share your thoughts. First, we pose to you the question that Annalisa posed in her interviews. When did you first know that you are a leader in the church? Second, what are the challenges you've encountered or seen others run up against in being recognized and respected as leaders in the church? And finally, how have you contributed to the systemic barriers blocking women and people of color and LGBTQ people and others at the margins from being identified and supported and valued as leaders of the church? What do you commit to doing to change that? Thank you so much for tuning into the show. If you liked what you heard, please go ahead and share this podcast with a friend, a neighbor, or member of your congregation. The Dunker Punks podcast is a team of contributors from around the country trying to be a plumb line connecting the world to God's just and joyful vision for the earth. The episode team for this show includes Annalisa Gross, who contributed audio, Jacob Krauss, who edits the show and creates our music. Suzanne Lay, who manages production, and I'm today's host, Emmett Wachowski-Eldred. Arlington Church of the Brethren provides server space and sponsors the show, and we're also grateful to On Earth Peace for their support. Find archives of the show on iTunes or Stitcher and online at arlingtoncob.org dpp. And you can connect with the show on social media at DunkerPunksPod, or you can email us at dpp at arlingtoncob.org. Thank you so much for listening.